morning. Good morning. It's good to see you guys this morning. Hey, Zach. Yep. It's good to see you guys. I have a few announcements that I want to make before we begin. Um, the first one is if you are looking around going, going, did we have an exodus of all of the women? The answer is, yeah, we did. They left. Um, and this is what they're doing. They're right there. So what I hear is the women's retreat's going great, um, and everybody's having a wonderful time. I have no idea if that means that they're relaxing, because I've never been on a women's retreat. <laughs> but thank you for praying for them. Um, continue praying for them. They're all making a trip back this afternoon, um, so pray for safety on the road. Um, a couple of other announcements. We still have our couples checkup opportunity available to the whole church. Um, if you are a couple um, getting married, married already, um, either way, you're welcome to take the couples checkup. And uh, the information for that has come through our family connection email. So if you have not received that but, would, but are interested in this, um, come and let me know and I'll make sure that you get the information so you can take advantage of it. Um, next, next weekend, we have our mobile market. Um, here at the church, uh, the Beyond Our Doors team is hosting that, and you can sign up to be a part of that um, through Church Center. And then uh, the weekend after that is a church work day. You can also find information about that on Church Center. Um, and if you need any help finding that stuff, please come and let me know. I'd be happy to help you. But that's all I've got. So let's stand together, and, uh, and we're going to worship.
with one voice, let the people cry, holy, holy Lord. Every creature is saying praises to the King, all creation cries, holy is the Lord. Let the earth rejoice, singing with one voice, let the people cry, holy, holy Lord. Every creature is saying praises to the King, all creation cries,
thank you for the life that we find in Christ. We thank you that we can come to a place like this to worship and to learn. And Father, we ask now that you would grow us to be more like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. You guys can have a seat. And if you're one of our kiddos, K through five, you can be dismissed to Sunshine Kids Club. If you're one of our guests, please feel free to go with your kid to get them checked in. And then you can come back and join us. Our church family is fortunate to have 
adult volunteer sponsors in our student ministry that are heavily invested in discipleship of the teenagers, the adolescents, uh, from 11 to 18. We are thankful that they are there. I've told the parents that uh, I consider all of them to be first-round draft picks. They are gifted and skilled, and they work hard, and they are prepared, and I am extremely uh, thankful for them and for their work. They've stepped up courageously to invest, to accept the students, to, to love on them, and to challenge them to walk with Jesus, to encourage and urge and exhort and implore the students to pursue a trajectory that follows Jesus, that begins to own their faith. They don't replace the parents. They know that they can't change hearts. They just are there to help point the students to Jesus. Now, all of us are commissioned to make disciples, to point others to Jesus, to step up courageously, if you will, to love on others and to challenge one another to walk with Jesus Christ. That is our commission. That is our calling by Jesus Christ. And that is our desire. Student ministry might be the easiest way to see that. We've got students, we've got volunteers that are invested in students that are able to respond. Not as easy to see in the children's ministry, but it goes on there. And it goes on in all of our communities and our relationships throughout the body. And certainly within our own homes as parents disciple their children to Jesus and point them on a trajectory of becoming more like him. Well, today we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And here's one of the great things that we get, since we're all commissioned to disciple one another to Christ, even as a church family, we get a model for ministry in these 12 verses. We get a pattern set forth by Paul, Silas, and Timothy that we can imitate as we seek to follow Jesus, as we seek to become more like him, this is what he trained them to do, and this is what they are giving us the example to do. So if you're confused as to how to disciple one another or you need a catalyst, a good uh, kick in the pants, if you would, uh, this might be the passage to do it. I'm excited about it. Uh, and, and what uh, is it that takes place in a church family when the gospel takes root? Well, one of the things that happens that we're going to see in, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, is that relational discipleship takes place. And our church family becomes more like Jesus Christ. We begin to point one another to Jesus through prayer, through friendship, through conversation, through sharing scripture, through kindnesses, and we begin to look and act more like Jesus Christ. That is our calling. So I invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul's going to give us three necessary traits. The first one is courage in verses 1 to 6. He's going to give us the trait of Love in verses 7 and 8, and then in verses 9 to 12, the trait of challenging one another or encouraging, exhorting one another with great intentionality. And I would encourage you, as we begin to look at God's Word and as you've opened your heart to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life this morning, to have someone in mind. Perhaps it's a friend in the church family or a friend in the neighborhood or a family member or a child or a spouse or someone in the ministry that God has given you here. Have that person in mind and let the Holy Spirit give you greater insight as we go through this and look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Paul addresses in verses 1 to 6, courage in response to his accusers. And we see in verses 1 to 6 that when the gospel takes root, we serve God courageously. When we buy into the gospel and, and it transforms our lives, then we begin to step out, 
trusting God, empowered by him. Paul is going to respond in verses 1 to 6 to his opponents back in Thessalonica. He got this word from Timothy when Timothy came and found him in Corinth. And he said, here's what they're saying about you. They're saying that you are worthless in your ministry and that you have no message for the people. They're saying that you are fraudulent, that you are deceitful, that you kind of bait and switch. You promise big things that have to do with the essentials of living the human life, but there's nothing there. They're saying that you are in it for greed, for your own personal profit, and for your own frame, fame. That's what the accusations are, and that's what we're going to see in verses 1 to 6 as we go through them. Basically, they accuse Paul of being a snake oil salesman. Now, I don't know if you know what a snake oil salesman is, but, you know, when I was a kid uh, going to amusement parks, there was always an Old West town experience that they gave you, you know, and there's always a shootout that climaxed the whole uh, skit and sketch. But... Uh, there was also the snake oil salesman, the one who would bring his medicine show and try to proclaim that uh, he had the panacea, the cure-all. So this is what I remember as a child at the amusement parks, fascinated by the Wild West. And that's what they are claiming about Paul. Uh, he was a snake oil salesman, that he was, had a worthless message, that he was fraudulent, and that he was only in it for fame, recognition, and profit. Well, snake oil actually has a history. It's originally used in China, and it was made from the Chinese water snake that is extremely high in omega-3 fatty acids and when applied with herbs and spices and other mixtures of things, that it would reduce inflammation. It would actually bring some relief from swelling and especially in the joints. And so when 180,000 Chinese came over to help with the, the building, the laying of track for the Transcontinental Railroad in the mid-1800s, they brought this with them and people were fascinated. You know, those who were here in America, they were just, wow, this is great stuff. We got to have some of this. Well, we don't have Chinese water snakes in America. And so that's where the charlatans and the hucksters and the medicine trade shows came in. These guys said, hey, we'll tell them it's a rattlesnake. Rattlesnakes have the same powers. In fact, they got even better powers because they're from our country. And they're tough. They're mean. They're not just a water snake. And so they went around and they would mix together, not rattlesnake oil or Chinese water snake oil. They just mixed together mineral oil and herbs and spices and sometimes red pepper to give it a little zing to make it feel like something was happening. And that's what became the snake oil that the people went around selling. They were charlatans. They were hucksters. They were fraudulent, and they were after profits. It lasted until about 1916 when Clark Stanley, with his famous snake oil, he was called the rattlesnake king, by the way, so he had lots of leverage in this field. And uh, when he was tried by the Bureau of Chemistry, which was a precursor to the FDA, and he was fined because it was found that there was no snake oil in his medicine, even though it was a patented medicine. He was a huckster. He was a charlatan. And that's what these people are claiming, that Paul was there in Thessalonica, that he was promoting a message that was worth nothing and that it brought him recognition and it brought him money and that he skipped town just like they did in the Wild West before anybody found them out. Paul's got to respond to that. And so he's going to respond to the first thing in, in verses 1 and 2. He's, he's accused of authoring a worthless product. And so this is what he says in verses 1 and 2. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, he's calling back to, to mind the things they 
know and experienced, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Now, last week, when we were looking at chapter one, we noted the transformative work of the gospel, the life-changing power of Jesus Christ, and how it moved into the people with power and conviction and, Holy, and the Holy Spirit, and how it moved into the church family, and then it began to move into the region around. So Paul is saying, no, you remember we have a message that is not worthless. And besides that, we had the boldness to speak to you amidst great opposition and persecution. The charlatans of the Wild West got out of town before anybody could come after them. Paul had just been beat and imprisoned, tortured mentally in Philippi. He came to Thessalonica, was ready to do it again. And still they came after him. He had boldness because he had courage to step up and speak. The second thing that they claim that he did was that not only was his ministry worthless, but they thought him a fraud. This is what he said in verses 3 and 4 in response. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. He's addressing all of that. We didn't do a bait and switch. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Like a snake oil salesman, they accuse him of fraud, of deceit. And so Paul says, I'm not lying. This is the truth. It's anchored in God's word. It's not impure. He said it's not even part of all of these religious cults that were in Thessalonica that had all these sensual practices and rituals. He said it's not even any of that. I didn't lie. I didn't bring anything sensual, and I wasn't deceitful. They were essentially accusing him of the things they were doing whether they were politicians or city leaders or religious leaders or philosophers. They were the ones that were very practiced in all of these things, so they projected that on Paul, trying to dissuade others of his ministry. And of course, behind it all is the spiritual warfare of Satan, causing them to act in this form and fashion, just like he does with us today. But instead of being fraudulent, Paul was courageous. He possessed a courage that came from the Lord, and it started with his commission of the gospel. He wanted to respond to the Lord in loving obedience because the Lord had charged him to make disciples. He says here, he entrusted us with the gospel. That's a charge that Paul was given. It's a charge that all of us are given in the scripture to go into all the world and to make disciples, teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded us to obey. Paul was courageous because he had been entrusted with the gospel. And he knew that God had called him not to give a worthless message, but to give a message of deliverance to people that needed help. Why is it that people, so many people in our world today go through life in, in great agony and pain, and shame, and, and guilt, and loneliness. It's because they don't know the truth. Because they haven't heard the gospel. It's because no one has taken the time to share that gospel with them. We've got to be a people like Paul that are courageous, that are willing to share that verbally with those that don't yet know Jesus as Savior that we might expose them to the life-transforming power of Jesus Christ, his love, his grace, his truth, his healing. No one else has that kind of message. And there is nothing greater in this world and no greater joy than seeing someone come to Christ. But Paul's courage didn't only come from being charged with the gospel, being entrusted to share the gospel, but it also came from his desire to please God. We're told here 
We've been entrusted with the gospel, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. That's his deep desire here. He is energized by a desire to please God. And the only reason that anyone will have a desire to please God is because they love God. That's the root of pleasing God. Now, you may try to please God in order to try to get something from him, but that's not love, and that's not what Paul discusses here when he talks about pleasing God. He talks about a desire out of his love for God to do what delights God, to obey God. And so, because of that, he is willing to step up with great courage. If you really love God, your driving force becomes to please God. And that gives you and I a courage to obey him, to step out for him, to live for him. God's supreme demonstration of love at the cross drives us to love him and to serve him. Jesus gave us this model. He told us more than once in John, I live, I act, I verbally say what the Father wants me to. I want to bring delight to the Father. I want to please the Father. That was the example that Jesus gave us. And that is the exhortation that Paul is giving us, not only in writing, but by his own life. And so if you need courage in your life to step up, with the gospel, to disciple others. Don't try to summon it from within. Just point yourself to the cross. Meditate on the love of God for you and let him compel you. Let him give you that strength and courage to reach out and to love others, to give others the gospel of Jesus Christ. The final accusation of Paul's motivations was that he flattered others so that he would get fame and, and profit, and nothing could be further from the truth. This is what he says in verses 5 and 6. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know. Four times in these 12 verses, he's reminded them of what they know. Nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. Paul's accusers, his opponents accuse him of trying to butter up people with flattery so that they'll respond favorably to him. They accuse him of greed for fame, to be well recognized and known. To, so that his name goes out across the region and he can make more money off of it. They accuse him of greed in his work to make money off of it. They accuse him of bringing flattery. And so Paul says, that's not our point. We're here to glorify God. We're here to honor him to point everyone to him and not to ourselves. He says in other passages, he says, I've died to myself. I, I want to live a life by faith in the Son of God that magnifies his name and that is empowering to me as I serve him. I want to do the things that please the Father, not the things that bring attention to me. He even says, as an apostle, I could have exerted authority and commanded a response, but he didn't. He didn't use that. For the most part, we don't have opponents preventing us or accusing us of wrong motives when we step up to serve, although occasionally you'll get that if you're active in, in serving others with kindness or spiritual truth. But we do always face some type of spiritual warfare, some type of opposition when it comes to walking with Jesus, when it comes to serving Jesus, when it comes to being courageous. And sometimes we just need courage to step up and serve others. Courage just to minister to others. Courage to be willing to open our mouths and tell others about the answers that Jesus Christ brings to life. That he has the answer for sin, 
for shame and guilt, that he brings healing and the free gift of eternal life to all who believe in him. Other times we need courage just to love imperfect people. Whenever we act in response to God's love, you can be assured that he will give you that courage and that you will align with God's will. Paul has courage. When we are rooted in the gospel, we serve courageously. The second thing we see, the second trait has to do with love, and, and it's found in verses 7 and 8. And, and I would say this, when the gospel takes root, we love fervently. When the gospel explodes in our hearts, then we begin to give ourselves away. And it's a love that is self-giving. It's not a love based on what we can get in return or what we can take from others. Loving God sets us on the path to courage to proclaim the gospel freely. And expressing love to people opens their hearts to God to accept his grace and experience his truth. Well, Paul's method is clear in verses 7 and 8. He's given us negative explanations of his ministry in verses 1 to 6. In verses 7 to 12, he's going to be positive as he lays it out for us. And in verses 7 and 8, it's about the character of loving others through gentleness. And his conduct is given to love. Let's read verses 7 and 8. Paul wrote this, but we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having so fond an affection for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. Here's a love that is gentle. Imperfect people need grace and truth poured into their lives. And perhaps the first need in loving others is to learn gentleness. Love is tough and, and love is tender. And Paul talks here about the tender side of love, about the gentle side of love. I've had a number of people in my life who approached me with grace and truth. And I've had some that, like Paul, could be sharp and could be forthright. But when alone with them, they were gentle. And why is that? Because Paul gives us the example of a nursing mother. And just like a nursing mother knows her child, so did these friends and mentors. They were aware of my needs and my capacities. Think about how a nursing mother is totally aware of her infant's Needs. She becomes aware of the skin color and the taste of a kiss and the, the, the look in the eyes. Gets to know that child really well. And is fully aware of the capacities that that child pretty much lacks more than anything else. And is gentle in her awareness and willing to reach out and to serve that child. Paul is giving us that as an illustration, an analogy for his ministry to the people in Thessalonica while he's being persecuted amidst great opposition. Think of that, if you will. I mean, what kind of character is that when it comes to gentleness, when you're being attacked? And in my case, would want to fight back with everything I've got. Paul was gentle. And he says, I want you to have that kind of gentleness. He says that by his life and by reminding them as well as us that that was how he treated them. Love is gentle. The second manifestation of a loving spirit that we see here is having a fond affection for you. And that literally means to a deep longing or a, a yearning to reach into your life. When the gospel takes root in your life, this is the desire that you have with others. To, to pass along the baton of following Jesus, to help them, to bless them, to encourage others. And it's very exciting when you come across people that are asking those types of questions. God gives us that longing. There's nothing more fulfilling than being used of God to see someone else grow to maturity in Christ. It's extremely exciting. And Paul is giving us that model here, and it becomes a catalyst for us. That longing to serve others by pointing them to Jesus. 
with gentle love is characteristic of someone in whom the gospel has taken root. The third manifestation of a loving spirit here is to feed the hungry. Obviously, nursing mothers feed their infants. They're aware of their needs and their inability to feed themselves. We would do well to imitate the incarnational ministry of Paul here. He was willing to feed the people in Thessalonica, the people at the church here. And so he gave them the gospel. He pointed them to Jesus Christ. He knew that the deepest need of every human heart is to know Jesus Christ, to be forgiven of their sins and to receive the free gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the greatest need. And so that's where he started. When he went to the synagogue, he would go through the Old Testament and show how it pointed to the Messiah who would come and bear the sins of the world, die to pay the price, the penalty of, of sin, and be resurrected again victoriously over sin and death. And he would share the gospel with the Gentiles he didn't know anything about. The Old Testament but he would tell them about this God-man, Jesus Christ, who loved them enough to pay the price for their sins. He gave the gospel. And then Paul says, that's not all. We didn't stop there. We didn't just proclaim the gospel and then move on. We didn't check that off our list and say, we're done. No, we imparted our lives to you. And what does that mean? Well, that's an incarnational ministry. They lived out who they were in Jesus Christ. The life they now live by faith in the Son of God, they lived out to those around them. And so what were they doing when they did that? Well, they were showing people we can be gentle when we're attacked. They were showing people what kind of riches they possessed in Christ Jesus, as well as telling them uh, about that. They were showing people that by God's divine power, he had given them everything for life and godliness. They were just showing them how to live and letting the people around them absorb that from them. That's the third manifestation of the loving spirit here is to feed the hungry, to let people know about the life-changing power of Jesus Christ in your life, to not only tell people about submission to Jesus Christ, but to show them in your life. Motherhood discipleship becomes aware of the needs and the capacity of another person, which spurs a longing to minister to that person. In gentleness, there is an awareness of the needs and capacity. And with a persistent, gentle love, the gospel is given and there is modeling in the life of Christ. Can you think of anyone that needs that type of love in your life? Perhaps Jesus is calling you to minister to them even this week. But when the gospel takes root, we love people fervently. Verses 9 to 12 in the final section, he points out the need to exhort others. And so in verses 9 to 12, when the gospel takes root, we challenge others intentionally. If motherhood discipleship incarnates, incarnates love, then fatherhood discipleship is the ultimate coach and cheerleader, exhorting and encouraging and imploring, pushing people along and pulling people along. If the mother expresses love based on needs and capacity, the father expresses challenge based on the ultimate goal. And that's what Paul gives us here at the end of this section. All of this is moving toward this progression. All of the discipleship to Jesus, all of the pointing others to Jesus, all of them helping them understand their riches in Christ so that they can live. And that is so that they will walk worthy. He writes this in verse 12, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The word picture here for these two words, to walk worthy, is, is one of scales. You put something on this end and, and this side goes up. Well, in the ancient Near East, you would put your grain on this scale that you wanted to buy, and then they would put weights of monetary value on this side. And when it balanced out, then that was the word picture of walking worthy. 
The grain was worthy of this price, and you would pay that price. Well, we are the ones that are told to walk worthy. So we are on the scales, and our standard is Jesus Christ. And we don't want to be like this with Christ. We want to be a people that reflect him in this world, that are becoming more like him. That when people look at us, they can see something of the character of Jesus Christ in us. When they experience our kindnesses and our service toward them, they experiencing something of the action of Jesus Christ in their life. We want to be a people that walk worthy. And that happens when we walk in loving obedience, when we cooperate with the Holy Spirit, and he changes us from the inside out to become more like Jesus. Well, how do we go about it in ministry? Paul gives us three ways that they did through their work of sacrifice through their walk with Jesus and through their words. We see the verse, uh, the first in verse nine, a form of discipleship that challenges with integrity. We see that throughout these verses. It's manifest in their lives through their work that he says this, for you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you. We proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul and his team gave time and energy to work so that they might give more time and energy to the Thessalonians so that the Thessalonians could devote their time and energy to Paul and Silas and the team, teaching them God's word and prompting them with encouragement and showing them how to walk with Jesus. They sacrificed. Every Jewish boy was taught a trade, and, and Paul's evidently was tent-making or, or possibly, as some scholars say, uh, leather worker. They did that so that the Thessalonians would not have to be involved in paying their bills or, or, or taking care of them. They were willing to sacrifice to further serve the Thessalonians. And when the gospel takes root in our lives, we are willing to serve others. We're willing to sacrifice on their behalf. You know, every generation and every culture has different sacrifices and, and experiences those differently, experiences them differently. Perhaps in our generation, the greatest sacrifice is our time and our energy, what we devote that to. Uh, if you think about it, it's even hard to get along and get together with close friends sometimes because we're too worn out or we're too overbooked or just flat don't want to sometimes. We have to be willing to sacrifice time and energy to be able to serve others. That's the work of the gospel sometimes in helping others become more like Jesus, helping them walk worthy of Jesus Christ. When the gospel takes root, we not only sacrifice time and energy, we intentionally challenge others with our lives. And that's where we see the walk of Paul and the disciples in verse 10. Our example sets a pattern just like Paul did for us. In verse 10, he says, you are witnesses. And so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. Practically speaking, when the gospel takes root, we have a longing to live a life of integrity. We want to follow Jesus Christ. We want to be devout. That's our word for holiness, right? We want to pursue holiness in our lives. We want to be single-minded about pursuing Jesus Christ and living as he would have us live. We want to be upright in our behavior, and that's just a practical righteousness that plays out in our lives as we yield to the leadership of Jesus in our lives. And we want to be blameless, Everyone here is blameless, right? Blameless is not sinless. That's a word that scares all of us, and it, it tempts many of us to just write off the whole thing and say, well, I'm not going to do that because I can't be blameless. But that's not how Paul uses blameless throughout his letters. When he speaks of being blameless, he speaks of keeping short accounts with God. Not sinless. We still sin, but we deal with that sin. And we confess that sin, and, and God cleanses us of all unrighteousness. That's what it means to be blameless. People can't accuse us. Satan can't accuse us of that sin because it's been forgiven. 
Paul's walk was worthy of being imitated, and it was a life of integrity that began to influence the people. He challenges us by his pattern of life so that there is no use for hypocrisy in our lives anymore. We don't want to be a people who are saying, do as I say and, and not as I do. Many of us have been fortunate to have those kinds of mentors or even parents in our lives. I went to a, a college, a Christian college, that had a lot of pastor's kids and missionary kids that were turned off to the gospel. Why was that? Because their parents were one way at church and another way at home. None of it resonated with the gospel. We don't want to be people like that. We don't want to be hypocrites. Paul says we want to be a people that pursue being devout, single-minded in our pursuit of Jesus and, and walking in obedience to him. And we want to be practical in our righteousness. We want to be blameless in dealing with sin. People are always watching you to learn about Jesus. We want to give them a life that keeps them pointed to Jesus. Fatherhood discipleship involves not only our work and our walk, but also our words. And that's what we see in verse 11. As Paul is very intentional in what he vocalized to the Thessalonian believers. He said this, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. He vocalized his desire to see them grow to maturity in Christ Jesus. Everything he said was aimed toward helping them to walk worthy of Jesus Christ, to grow in grace and knowledge of him. We can summarize that by saying he challenged them to respond to Jesus Christ, to his truth and his love in their lives. Paul was willing to speak into their lives. He was willing to tell them about their resources in Christ. He was willing to cheerlead them and to comfort them and to challenge them and to correct them when necessary. That's what Paul illustrates for us with his life and did with the Thessalonians. By his example, we are challenged to vocalize with others, to verbalize. You know, my kids are out of the house now, empty nest. And, and, and one of the things about that, there's great joy in gathering with them, but then you begin to reflect as, as a parent and, and you think, oh man, you know, I, I, uh, I missed some cues there from God that I could have exhorted and implored and encouraged I didn't take advantage of all the opportunities I had. And certainly there's great joy in knowing that God is at work in their lives and it's not all up to me. But I think that's underlying what Paul is saying here is don't waste the opportunities that you have with one another in your conversations and in your relationships. Take the opportunity to cheer them on in walking with Jesus Christ. Take advantage of every contact to somehow bless them or encourage them or correct them when necessary. That's why we value authentic community so that others can help us see blind spots that we don't have. And I would say this to you. Last week I gave you examples of having a Timothy or a Paul or a Barnabas in your life. This week I would say... Uh, if you want to shock someone into a discipleship relationship, just start doing this on your own, you know? It's nothing that says you can't encourage others and implore them to walk with Jesus and exhort them. Just start doing it with kindness and with scripture and with prayer. That's our calling in Christ is to make disciples. And we want to do that through a relational discipleship that helps one another become more like Jesus Christ. Your calling is not to control a person or, or not to make them something that they're not in Jesus Christ. It's simply to keep pushing, to keep promoting, 
to keep cheering them on and encouraging them to walk with Jesus Christ. And you can see when that happens in all the interwoven relationships of a church family, how all of us are more encouraged, more challenged to walk with Jesus and begin to look like Jesus, not only as individuals, but as a church family. When the gospel takes root in our lives, we become willing to engage in ministry that helps others become more like Jesus Christ. We've become courageous in stepping up to serve others. We begin to love fervently, gently aware of their needs and their capacities and willing to reach out and serve sacrificially with a longing that seeks their best. And we become intentional in challenging one another. We're not comfortable just letting people be or ignoring things going on in their lives, but out of our love, we reach out to them and challenge them to walk with Jesus. May that be our fixture on our minds and our hearts as we go out even this day and this week to serve Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this day. We thank you for not leaving us uh, confused and unaware and ignorant of what it means to disciple others to you, how we can serve others. We thank you for this pattern laid out by Paul, for this model of ministry that allows us to say, oh, okay, you, you've shown me what to do. Lord, we ask for the grace to serve you, to continue to be changed by you from the inside out, but most of all, to courageously and lovingly and challengingly serve one another, that we might all grow into your likeness. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. We'll stand together. Yeah.
for being with us this week. Have a good rest of the day.